0: some opportunity for you if you haven't already seen on social media and discord we are giving away four digital copies of the new movie under the stadium lights here is the approved radio ad that i'm going to now ta- uh, to give you guys here we go now on digital milo gibson and lawrence fishburne star in under the stadium lights an inspirational true story of a small town high school football team who fought to beat the odds to turn their lives around and win their state championship. Score your copy of Under the Stadium Lights, buy or rent it today. Rated PG-13 from Paramount Pictures. So guys, go ahead, if you haven't already, find it on Twitter, give it a retweet, make sure you're following uh, the Twitter account, and you got yourself a chance to win a free digital copy of the movie, Um Go ahead and do that. It looks fantastic. I highly recommend um, that you guys check this one out. Welcome on to the show now, writer of The Seamless Transition, a book that I had the opportunity to read um, before its official release, Will Shingleton. How are you doing, Will?
1: Corey, man, I'm so glad that we're getting to do this. We kind of danced around each other for a a few weeks, and we finally pulled it together, so I'm, I'm glad this is happening.
0: Yeah, I, I couldn't have been more pleased, uh, not only for you to be on the podcast today, but for you uh, giving me the opportunity to to read your latest novel that, from what I last saw, will be out in the fall of 2021. Is that still kind of the direction you're heading for the release of this book?
1: That is correct. Uh, hopefully just in time for football season. The release we have currently scheduled is August 1st, um, and we're going to do a big push around then, and then also once... Uh, specifically SEC football season starts we're gonna uh, release it a little bit more officially
0: right which I think is the exact kind of right people you want to hit because um, this novel really kind I mean first of all I'll let you kind of explain what Seamless Transition is about in your own words
1: yeah so basically Seamless Transition is about a an up-and-coming coach who uh, has aspirations of getting to the highest level at college football. And he sort of runs into his career trajectory, runs into another coach who's sort of a Nick Saban type, uh, old head, legendary figure. And their their relationship is really what forms the core of the story. And at some point, you know that for the younger guy to reach his goals, the older guy is going to have to move. And as we've seen multiple times through, in the last 10, 15 years of college football, that sometimes causes a bit of drama, and that is uh, specifically where my book camps out.
0: Yeah, and and this book, um, the political landscape side of things, I don't know if there's much out there that kind of, in in a fictional way, tells the story better. Because first of all, I love how you kind of, t- you know, tailor in some actual college football kind of storylines and things like that. It base you basically embed your own story inside of what really happened in college football at the time, which I think is fantastic. But you hit on so many different parts of the political landscape. and there's so many different. I'm, I actually made like a little flow chart on my on my notes because I was trying to like talk about all the different, little uh, avenues that you reached and all the different kind of pieces that fit into this political puzzle that is college <laughs> football. And I, I think you did a fantastic job about it. And and I want to really get into that today, too, because I think that's the part that readers and my listeners are going to enjoy the most of this novel.
1: Yeah, there was, uh, and even at the time where I had finished writing the book, um, there is always some sort of political machination going on going on around college football. And I don't know what it is that about that particular sport at that particular level that is so conducive to that kind of thing. Um but like as I was finishing the book and like getting ready to start promoting it, um, Gus Malzon gets pushed out at Auburn, uh, and like their whole coaching search starts all over again. And even in that that little you know snapshot, you see just the worst of what boosters can do and, what, you know, maybe unreasonable pressure can do, and um, yeah, it's that kind of, you know, it, it was easy for me to tap into that kind of storytelling vein in that particular setting because there's just so much of it. I didn't have to make that much stuff up um, just because, you know, it, it's already pretty interesting all on its own.
0: Yeah, that, that, that's what going without saying. And so, yeah, for people that are listening and are curious about this book, basically, and, and I love the way you set this up because I never would have ever thought about doing it this way. Basically you follow the investigative reporter that is trying to basically understand this relationship uh, between the head coach and this up and coming rising star in the football world. I mean, he's a national rising star. Everybody knows in and in the program and outside the program that this dude is going to be the next dude. Mm-hmm. Um, and you follow this reporter as he kind of talks to different people. He talks to assistant coaches. He talks to PR people. He talks to basically a lot of different people that have a lot of different perspectives on the scenario. And it's so interesting to kind of want to go to the next chapter and the next chapter, because it's like, okay, well, now we know a little bit more about this part of the puzzle, but how does that other guy now feel about what this guy kind of viewed that scenario? So I love the way you did that. How did you kind of come up with that idea?
1: Um, It, it was hard. That was honestly one of the hardest parts of the process was just like, I had this idea. Um, and what actually started all of this was I, I watched a YouTube video about, the late night wars that happened between uh, Conan O'Brien and Jay Leno back in the, the end of the the knots. Um, and I was just like the, the, the whole drama behind Jay Leno kind of pushing Conan out after only being in the job for a few months and like why he did it and how he was able to do it. And I don't know what made me think of this connection, but I just remembered all of the, the coach and waiting stuff with Jimbo Fisher and Bobby Bowden and, um, Mac Brown and Will Muschamp, and just remember that whole. I, I was in high school when all that happened, but I, I remember the just the the drama around it and the intrigue and just thinking like all this could have been avoided. Um, and so it was hard to to figure out how I was going to what what kind of framing device I was going to use to kind of preserve the the mystery of it a little bit. Um, and so like you said, in the very first chapter of the book, I pretty much tell you exactly what's going to happen. Um it was it's a very uh, sort of a dramatic irony kind of thing where the the reader knows where we're headed, and then the over the course of the book is kind of just finding more and more breadcrumbs to understanding why it happened. And thematically, that was the most important thing for me. It's not, you know, like I said, there are real life examples of things like this happening. And the more important thing as you know consumers of, college football and college football media and just being in that atmosphere is understanding why these things happen and I, hopefully taking steps to preventing them so that hopefully people's careers don't get ruined
0: yeah and and i think it's he did such a good job because i think every college football fan can relate to this book in some degree because i have basically you know you you have the the media maybe as one bucket of the store you have mm-hmm the internal programs, PR is kind of another bucket of the story. You have the entire coaching political atmosphere, whether that's coaching coaches and how they interact with PR or how they interact with the media or how they interact with boosters, but also how they interact with themselves is another piece because you have a lot of times where you have some assistant coaches talking about other coaches, you have other coaches talking about other coaches, or maybe even the lack there of them r- refusing to do that. And then you mm-hmm. also have kind of the behind the scenes booster aspect of it in another book. And I think all the college football fans, whether they you know, have a, a huge tie-in to the media or maybe in some regard, they despise the larger media, which is something you kind of hint at as well in the old timers and the old media. And I would like to get to that too. But then mm-hmm. you also have the PR people that I think a lot of people in college football kind of hold on to and, and how they spin things. And obviously the coaches stuff kind of stands on its own but well, then even the booster side of things, I mean, I, I don't know why, but the booster aspect of the story really – I know it was an SEC draw, and I know the SEC has a huge amount of boosters. But this, the booster part of the story really resonated with me with the Texas football program What we've mm-hmm. seen over the last two decades and it, the kind of dumpster fire that really the boosters have sort of created.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, like, I, you know, I mentioned – you know, Gus Malzahn getting run out and replaced with Brian Harson recently, but, like, another thing that happened was the letters that the Texas Boosters sent to the university, and it got uh, publicized about the whole Isa of Texas thing, um, and that just sort of reinforced that for me, of, like, you know, is this, just going back to the whole, like, chicken or the egg question of, like, is it a coach that makes a program, or a program that helps get a coach where he wants to be, needs to be, or is it both? And in the case of a place like Texas, I think it's interesting that you mentioned them just because, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that people like Charlie Strong have success at the job previous to coming to Texas and then all of a sudden don't. And then the same thing happens with Tom Herman. Like he's set in the world on fire at Houston and he, he goes into Texas and it's almost a complete 180 and I really hope that doesn't happen to Coach Sarkeesian because I am an Alabama grad and um, just, you know, ha- have come to adore him as a person uh, over the last couple of years and want the best for him. Um, but yeah, like there's definitely just, especially at that sort of deep underlying level is kind of what I was trying to get at. And if, if there was any point I kind of wanted to make with the book is like, maybe this is kind of, it's more comprehensive than we realize of, you know, you know, if, If one piece of the puzzle is out of line, like it's the whole thing is not going to work, you know. Like, even if you have a Nick Saban type character, if he doesn't have the resources available to him that he needs, if he has any sort of resistance from people at higher levels, like it's not going to happen the way that, you know, no matter how commandeering he is, no matter how good of a leader he is, like it's not going to happen the way that he wants it to.
0: That is such a critical point, and not only just to your Story, but to everybody's story, in college football is you need everybody to be on the same page. Uh, you need everybody working together, and if you don't have those things, um, it's not going to work out for you. Um, and, and so, it's really important that you have all those pieces all the way down from the admin to the assistant coaches to the players. If, if like you just said, if one of those things is not there it's not going to work for you. And and I think Texas, like you said, is a perfect example of that. Um, I want to dive in a little bit more to a couple of things I kind of just outlined there. And I want to start with, with Frank Payton, who is that, that head coach, um, who's been there, who has established himself at a program who has shown his ability to win, um, for decades and has really kind of basically entrenched himself in this program. Um, You said he had a little bit of Nick Saban vibes. Can you kind of – is it because you're an Alabama grad? And also, though, I I wouldn't say he's a perfect Nick Saban type. Um, He he reminds me a little bit of Joe Paterno a little bit, Mm -hmm. um, a little bit more of an old-school kind of guy when it comes to those things. Um, Kind of explain your idea and how you formed the character that is Frank Payton, which obviously is – you could make the argument – half of the most important part of the story
1: absolutely like and he he's you know he's he's the godfather he, he's the guy that you know ev- everything flows through um and when when i say nick saban it's its just kind of give a frame of reference because i deliberately um tried to differentiate him from nick saban because i'm obviously a, a very big admirer of nick saban um so frank payton if you can think about it like he's sort of the darkest timeline version of a nick saban type um because he is res- very resistant to change. Um, he, for all of his winning, just doesn't see the need to mix things up that much. Like you mentioned earlier, he is very hostile to media. He's all about controlling the narrative um, in a way that Coach Saban isn't. And and that sort of frames his relationship with Dave Medina, who's the, the younger coach, um, because Dave is very different to that and he and when i think about dave medina i think more of like a Lane Giffen type um and how he's you know this very avant-garde loud brash guy who comes in and you know on paper is almost completely antithetical to what frank payton would want um but the the thing that sort of placates him and preserves that relationship is that once they are together they win um also, uh, with with Dave Medina specifically, like Manny Diaz was also sort of a, a reference point, um, partly because he, he's one of the few Latino coaches in college football, which Dave Medina is as well. Um, but it is interesting to see the relationships that form between those younger up-and-coming guys who maybe want to try some new things, uh, you know, want to branch out away from the things that have worked for a really long time, and then a guy like Frank Payton who is very set in his ways.
0: Yeah, and I want to talk a lot about Dave Medina because Mm -hmm. I love him as a character, and I had like obviously you you're rooting for him throughout this entire thing, but really it felt more to me than that. Like I honestly wish I could have played for a guy like Dave Medina, and I and I want to talk about him more, and I'm going to talk about him a lot, but I want to finish up with Frank Payton because I think his role um, with the boosters specifically is such an important role, especially since later on in the novel, it obviously becomes even more important based off of you know what he ends up doing. And so I, I want to talk about like why you decided to go that route and why it almost <clears throat> made it seem at some points that the boosters were kind of handcuffing him and, and where that k- decided to come from. And and really, why was that so important to the story?
1: Yeah, so I think with Frank Payton specifically, his like critical flaw is that he can't let go. Um, and then the boosters are motivated to keep things the way they are. So, like, they have a lot of trouble letting go of him as well. Um, so that, that is sort of – that frames how they interact with everyone around them. Um, it is interesting because, like, there's this sort of, like, reluctance almost from Peyton initially – like you're not ever really sure, and I, I say like I wasn't really sure whether I wanted to do it to do it this way or not. Um, with Frank just being like power hungry and just being like, you know, just moving himself up as quickly as he can because it's not that exactly, but it's more of a culture of enablement, honestly. Like it, the the boosters, you know, are so motivated to keep their own power and, you know, exert their own influence over the university that uh, they sort of see this symbiotic relationship between them and this coach that they've, you know, raised money for for so long. And honestly, that gives them some power over him to be able to say, we want you to do this. We, we don't want things to go this way. Um, And it's, it's not a coincidence that there's not a whole lot of room for Dave Medina in that scenario.
0: And I think there's so much irony in boosters. And I think the way you portray them is really a good illustration of how it is because they get into the boosting business, whatever they're just donating, whatever whatever you want to call them. They get into that side of things because they truly, I believe most of them have a genuine desire just to help the program. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they don't care much else about anything. They would like to help the program. They want to help the current staff. But then there's got to be a transition. And am not, I'm sure, a quick one. I'm sure it's something that gradually happens over time. Uh, and it's really, you can't blame them because it's only human nature. Like, hey, at this point, I've given millions and millions of dollars. I kind of would like a say. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you know, what's the point of me doing things? So I kind of get that aspect of it. But quickly it turns from I'm helping the program to really I could be the reason the program's still being held up. At some point, especially in your novel, you can make the argument that these donors and these boosters um, care more about themselves and making decisions themselves than they actually do about the program's success, which is the complete opposite of the reason why they started in the first place.
1: Right, and I think there's there's an interesting line, um, because I remember having this conversation with people when everything with Texas started coming out, Um, and there's this question of, like benevolent boosters versus boosters who sort of see their donations as an investment, which it's not. Like it's 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 not taxed like it's an investment in the university itself. Like you're not supposed to necessarily expect a return on what you give. Like it's um, obviously if you're raising money for a specific project, like you know they're currently well they've already raised the money to uh, redo a lot of Brian Denny Stadium. Like if you donate to that project, yeah, you expect to have a completed stadium at the end once you've donated your money. But it's not always like that. There's, you know, especially for people that give over a a long period of time, like it's, it starts, like you said, as, you know, people who just want to, out of the generosity of their own hearts, give money to the university. But I think eventually as, you know, they accumulate more of their own resources. And as they pump more of those resources into the program, there is sort of an expectation of, hey, like that's, you know, I, I think that's just a, a cultural thing that's sort of seeped into the college football landscape and is, is a, very much a byproduct of the sort of blurred lines that we see now between college football as a business and as this, you know, amateur activity.
0: Okay, before we move on to David Dean, I got to ask you, just it had nothing to do with your book, but do you think that mm-hmm. sort of blurred lines, do you think that aspect of how they've entrenched themselves in college football, do you think that's bad for the game? Or do you think it actually has more benefit than people realize they just don't necessarily see the connection?
1: Um, I, I think a bit of both. Because I, I think, you know, for the average game-going fan that just shows up on Saturday or turns their TV on, um, there, there's not an, as much of an appreciation as there probably should be for the people that put on those events and pay for everything and um, make sure everything that it's is where it's supposed to be. And really, they're the ones who drive a lot of the program growing. Um, So I I think from that vantage point, I think it's good. I think long term, it just gets a little bit confusing. It's what I would say is like, if we're going to treat college football as an amateur endeavor, and it's, you know, sort of pushing the more uh, capitalistic financial aspects of it to the side for a moment, like then it's not good um, because there's this, like I said, sort of this investment attitude of I put this in, I get it back out. But if we are going to lean into the big business of it, which I think at this point is kind of undeniable, like the momentum is definitely carrying us in that direction. It doesn't have to be bad. Like I I think, I, I do think that steps should probably be taken to regulate it a little bit more in terms of what people can give and what they can give it for and what that entitles them to. Um, but I, I see no reason why going forward that we can't have an ecosystem for boosters where they're not seen as the you know shady bad guys in the background.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that. Let, let's talk about Dave Medina because, like I said, yeah. I, I, yeah. I love this character. Uh, I was rooting for this guy from the beginning. I, I liked a lot of attributes that he possessed. You kind of already had a little bit of how you framed him around maybe a Lane Kiffin type. Um, mm-hmm. The one part that I thought was interesting that you really hammered home from the beginning was you know, him being Latino, him being from Miami, yeah. him. And and why was that such a pivotal part of the story? Um, and what made you think of, of going that route with him?
1: Uh, well, there's a, there's a couple parts to that. Um, the first one is that my wife is from South Florida, um, and just having seen that culture and actually having written a lot of the book in their house uh, in Boca Raton, um, just, it kind of gave me some inspiration in that direction. I would also say that I just – I, I kind of pictured it as you know, the way I wanted things to be, like having better minority, minority representation in – college football coaching I think is really cool and hopefully we'll get more of that going forward and it was important to me to you know do that respectfully was part of it Um, but also because I wanted to pick a culture where coming to Birmingham which is where I'm from um, would be sort of dissonant and if you've been to Birmingham and been to Miami you know that they are very different places and if you grew up in you know, one versus the other, it would definitely be a bit of a learning curve to acclimate yourself uh, to that place.
0: Yeah, I've thought about that pretty much instantly because obviously I live in Alabama and so,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, and actually my brother lives in Miami and um, actually works with at the athletic department there. So I, it was really funny that you chose that and, and chose those two um, and, and really the juxtaposition between the two. Um, I got to ask you a side note here. Some of those uh, places, restaurants and stuff that you chose for them mm-hmm. to specifically talk about? Are those favorite places you like to eat and things like that? Or how how did you choose those ones?
1: Uh, so they, those places don't really exist, but they are based on places that do. So like um, the the town where there's a character called Marcus Walker who's, who becomes a, 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 kind of a big deal towards the middle of the story. Uh, so he lives in a place called Edgewood which doesn't exist, but it is based loosely off of the community I grew up in uh, outside of Birmingham. So like all of those places have genuine inspiration, but they are, uh, in, in in real terms, uh, fictional.
0: Gotcha. Well, you'll have to let me know maybe off the uh, record where some of those <laughs> places are next time I'm in Birmingham sure. to, to eat some good grub. Um, let's get back to Dave Medina here. So obviously, I love him, and I love what he was able to do, but the— bigger aspect besides off of him being Latino that you wanted to drive home was him being a players coach Mm -hmm. and a lot of what people liked, not just on the outside in the media, um, in this novel, but people in the program liked about him was that he was a players coach and his down to earth personality. Why was that such an important part of this story? And, Where did you decide that maybe – why is that such a favorable trait to have nowadays in the college football world?
1: I I think it's interesting because I – the sort of last straw in, like, deciding to tell the story this way was watching The Last Dance uh, documentary about the Chicago Bulls. And what really, like, hammered that home for me, that thematic juxtaposition, like what you're talking about, is – Michael Jordan, and thinking like, okay, so this guy is one of the most hardcore dudes in the entire history of sports. And, you know, I, having discussions about like, was it, do you have to be that way to like have that level of success? Or can you, you know, be a little more chilled out, chilled out and have that level of success? So, and I, I think that plays itself out a lot in, uh, specifically in college coaching, uh, the pros, I think there isn't as much disparity from coach to coach. Uh, I mean, I'm excluding, like, Tom Thibodeau comes to mind uh, from the Knicks as, like, sort of one of the last, like, real hard guys to be, like, a professional basketball coach in this moment. Um, but, yeah, like, in college, there's a- enormous disparity, and that that sort of, you know, trickles down from not just their personalities, but, like, even to their play-calling styles. Like, I think about you know, a guy like Brett Bielema, I remember it, it, him being at Arkansas and just sort of the difference between watching an Arkansas game or, you know, one of the games while well, he was Wis Wisconsin um, and, and then watching, like, an Oregon game and just being like, this is, this is the same sport. <laughs> like, um, just the, the differences in people and just, you know, w- which approach is better long term? Like, and I think that's an important question to ask. You know, we, I know we've talked a lot about Nick Saban so far, but. You know, he's a very micromanaging, you know, intense guy. And you have somebody like him who has had a, a ton of success, obviously. But then somebody like Dabo Swinney, who is not, at least to that extent, exacting, um, has also had a ton of success. And it looks like that's, you know, going to be the case going forward. So and that was important to me because I don't know the answer to that question. Like, what long term is better? So I think probably in terms of making it a happier place for people to be around, the players coach is definitely the way you want to go. Um, but if you are at sort of that win at all costs, you know, screw everybody's feelings uh, sort of school of sports, then like, yeah, Frank Payton's probably your guy.
0: Yeah, I agree. I don't know if there's a right answer for it. I think I lean towards having a head coach more like Nick Saban mm-hmm. and surrounding him with assistant coaches that are more, like Dave Medina, more like a James Franklin, you know, yeah. more of those personalities uh, because at the end of the day, and I've seen as a Penn State fan, sometimes I, I question whether or not James Franklin, you know, was fully hundred percent prepared. And it yeah. doesn't help at least from the PR perspective and what we get to see sometimes, you know, fans want it both ways fans want your coach to be exciting and and to be recruitable and all these great things. But at the same time, if you know, a coach is out kissing a bunch of babies all the time and and signing autographs all the time. And he does every single PR thing he could possibly do. And he's all over the country and he's doing this and that they love all that until they lose a game. And then they say, Oh, he's too busy doing all the other stuff. And they call him a used car salesman. So I Mm -hmm. don't know if a coach can win. Either in that aspect of things, yeah, but I do think it's an important topic nowadays, and I think it's going to be an important one moving forward. But I think honestly, as the next ten, twenty, thirty years go, I think more people will continue to lean towards the players' coach. I think yeah. the disciplinary, you know, super strict aspect of things, all that's kind of um going to the wayside. At, at least in my, you still get a couple tough nuts to crack, but it feels like they are harder to find because really it comes down to recruiting. These kids want to go yeah. where they're going to have fun more than they just want to win. Because, um, I had the privilege of interviewing, uh, the, the new head coach over there at Marshall. Mm-hmm. And, and he, he talked a lot about, we don't ever recruit anybody to telling them we're going to win the national championship. You know, yeah. if if you start saying that you're going to win the national championship to everybody, um, only one person is going to win the national championship every year. And and Charles Huff, I don't know why I couldn't remember the name off the top of it, but yeah, uh, we had Charles Huff on the podcast and he's like, look, we don't ever tell that to kids. And I think fans get too focused on winning national championships sometimes. And I think that sometimes hurts their feelings more than when they need to do. And so players don't care just about winning national championships anymore. They care about getting to the next level and they care about having a, a good experience And the Frank Paytons of the world aren't providing the same level of fun, but also the same um, intimacy, really, that the Dave Medinas are providing.
1: Yeah. And as transfer rules continue to get more relaxed and it becomes easier for guys to leave programs if they do get burnt out by, you know, some guy who's just, you know, busting their balls all the time or, um, we also have seen a huge shift towards player marketability, and if you have this dinosaur who doesn't you know, get that aspect of things, like you know, a player who's trying to build his own personal brand to develop it before he goes to the next level, like isn't going to want to stick around with that guy. So I, I think you're probably right um, going forward. Now, I, I think we will see so, a, a happy medium, and the happy mediums will be the ones who uh, have the most success. But yeah, I definitely think we're we're trending more towards uh, the Dave Medina's having uh, rule of the day. Yeah, and, and real quick about
0: the transferring because the transfer comes up a little bit, um, mm-hmm. not exceptionally, but yeah. a, enough where it's worth talking about that. I think it's hard for the Frank Paytons of the world now to coach too, because if you're you can't do it full out like you used to, because they'll just leave. Yeah, and, and so you're kind of as the players get more and more responsibility and they get more and more rights, if you will, even though they're not technically a workforce, whatever you want to say about that, um, they continue to get more rights and more choices. The Frank Paytons really don't have as much say when it comes down to it. When you think about it from the whole perspective, the head coach, if you're getting pulled by one side by boosters, you're getting pulled by another side by administration, and then the players can now do whatever they want, really the head coach is becoming a more powerless position than it was 20 30 years ago.
1: Yeah, and at that point you're more of a you can either shift more towards the the tactician element of it where you know that's more what you focus on or you're essentially a, a CEO of a, a Fortune 500 type team.
0: Yeah, that and and I think that's what a lot of people have have said about a lot of the coaches. Um, I'm not going to try to say the PR's name Tim something. Yeah, Tim
1: Catapodis. Uh, that's a uh, I I literally just Googled Greek names because I I needed something to go with Tim. Yeah, well, you nailed that. It's trying to figure out um, what the heck to call these people uh, that that makes them kind of sound the way that you picture them in your head.
0: Well, yeah, you nailed that because I, I, and and I had the privilege when I was in undergrad to um, work pretty heavily with the Penn State um, athletic program, especially Mm -hmm. in the marketing side of things. And so I have sat in the rooms you know with athletic directors i've sat in the rooms with pr directors i've sat in those rooms and those offices and you did a fantastic job especially later on in the story especially when things start getting tight and things start really happening about how those meetings would transpire and Mm -hmm. how one or two things would kind of be different that it would set off alarms and how things are done. I loved this character. Obviously Dave is probably obviously going to be my favorite, but this guy, I was looking forward to it because he provided so much insight from with you know, within the program. And I think that's such a cool aspect of it because fans don't see the stuff that's happening inside. And I don't, and I love the idea that there was, um, basically two sides to what was happening on the inside, and I think that's such an important part of college football that a lot of people don't really talk about.
1: Yeah, and, like, winning over, and this is a political game that they play, but winning over as many, you know, factions as you can is, like, one of the most important parts of being a head coach, especially in in the modern game, like, to where you don't have that sort of infighting between departments that can really undermine what you're trying to do because like you said this is you know at the the recruiting is probably going to be the, the the primary focus for every program in the country and like if you are sending out mixed signals within your own building and that that just inevitably transfers out into the signals that you're sending to players you're trying to bring in and that's sort of just like inconsistency is what and in my opinion brings down a lot of coaching tenures prematurely
0: I agree. I, I think we that aspect of it is something that, again, is not talked about nearly enough because the inconsistency, um, you could have a decent coach at a big-time program that all get along and, and all the stars align, and I, I would take that bet over, you know, a fantastic coach in the wrong situation. I, I don't think enough credit goes to that. and I And I think this novel did a fantastic job of kind of – pulling you know or pulling back the curtain and really exposing all the different things that are going on because it's not so cut and dry um as many people like it to be i want to talk about why maybe his role was so important to the story that Mm -hmm. you're trying to tell because um you could have maybe left this out you could have maybe um you know had the the um had the the reporter go a different route. You could have had him interview maybe someone else a part of it, maybe even an athletic director, but you specifically chose um someone that was mostly in charge of public relations. Why did you choose that and why was it so important to the story?
1: Um, I, I think I picked him for two reasons. The first one is that my dad uh was a sports information director, uh, for a long time and I just, you know, value uh that piece of the program and also recognize that it's not one that gets uh, a, a ton of FaceTime, <laughs> so oh, yeah. yeah that was that was something that was important to me of you know th- there are multiple different roles you know not just the sid or in his case the sort of the assistant athletic director in, in charge of marketing and pr but um there's there's a lot of people that you know, have relationships with coaches and sort of see all of the goings on behind the scenes and yeah that was that was important to me um also i, I wanted to include him because you mentioned that things aren't always cut and dry and that, you know, there, there is a character I, you know, I'm sure you remember Russ Porter. Uh, there. I was going to get
0: to him next. I have yeah. a whole thing on in questions. I want to ask about him.
1: Yeah. So he is the cut and dry guy um, is very, he sees things, he calls him as he sees them and just says like, this is the way this is. And there's not a whole lot of, um, you know, gray area um, with, with that kind of approach. Um, whereas, you know, it, Tim Katapotis' job is to sort of um, blur those lines a little bit.
0: Yeah, and and I and I want to get to Russ Porter because, well, there's a lot of reasons. First of all, yes, the SID job does not get nearly as much attention and love and support because you guys got to understand these coaches are, are doing so many things that are the face of the program. The SID basically... You can make the argument is almost more powerful than the head coach when it comes to the message that's being sent out. I mean, in most cases, they are sitting right next to the head coach during the weekly press conferences. In most cases, when the coach forgets a player or a name that he's supposed to remember, they're the ones that feed it to him they're not a secretary in the sense of all the stuff they have to do, but in a way they're forced to know all the stuff a secretary would have to know on top of everything else. And so I have a tremendous amount of respect, uh, for, for your father and also all those across the country, because it it is a, um, it's almost kind of like a thankless job in, in, in a lot of ways. And so, and when you're met, when you mess up, everyone will realize that you messed up, but when you're doing your job, no one really
1: seems to care. Yeah. They're the, uh, left guards of, of the uh, administrative world. They, they really are. So, okay, let's talk about Russ Porter, um, yeah. because
0: I don't know if you did this on purpose, but obviously I really didn't like this character, mm-hmm. um, and, and that was on purpose, I know. But what I did know was on purpose was the fact that he was not just uh, – and and people will get this right away – but not just that he was a media member, Because I don't think the knock was on the media being cut and dry or just telling the obvious story. But it seemed like it was specifically pointed at maybe the media members that have already kind of made their mark and have already kind of set themselves in stone uh, as far as cemented themselves into the conversation and, and that their perspective now was really the only important one. But it seemed like there was a jab towards, you know, the reporters out there and we know who those are that yeah. have made it and now feel like they don't have to really do the legwork anymore
1: yeah and there, there's yeah and to me there are you know a hundred or more Russ Porters out there in the current media landscape but like and I, I think he would do quite well um in sort of the uh you know podcast and blog era because that's you know that that's who i I, that's what I had in mind with him is that, like he started out as, you know, hypothetically, uh, you know a journalist with some integrity. And then along the way, just um, the more shocking things that he said, the more attention he got, and the more people, you know, liked him. And so he just leaned into that um, and just started to say things uh, that were more and more just brash and potentially insensitive. <laughs> um, so yeah, he he was one of my favorite characters to write, I think. Partly because I'm just nothing like him, Um, and um, also because he's he's important. Like I think there are a lot of those kinds of people, especially in clickbait culture, that you know deliberately, even if they're not trying to say things that aren't true, will you know stretch the truth or really go in on a part of a story that you know brings them you know more eyeballs and. It's it's probably not always intentional, and that's kind of what I had in mind with him. Is like, you know, he probably didn't do it on purpose, and it was probably a pretty gradual, you know, fall away from his roots. But you know, at the time that he and and Dave's atmospheres, you know, collided, like that was who he was. Yeah, and I think
0: I agree with you that he is an important part of the story, Um, but really I I like his. And I think his role is important because how often now do you you know, do we think about these Russ porters of the world sort of illustrating and manipulating our perspective on what's mm-hmm. really happening? Right. And yeah. so all the people that are reading Russ Porter's perspective on a Dave Medina or or whatever real life example you want, I mean, whether you want to admit it or not, he is truly um changing people's minds on things i mean he's seriously manipulating people's minds and without really doing the legwork and it's one thing to come to that conclusion but it's another thing to come to that conclusion instantly without actually diving into the details and there's a couple times in that book that that uh john is literally trying to like well no not really like i did the research on this and he's like no 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 no, no, and he like, doesn't want to have anything to do with it and i think that's such an important part it's like well wait a second guys like this is clearly wrong and yet we we don't seem to really care um yeah. i i love that aspect of it and and, and really it's kind of scary because in a way um they're Controlling people's lives. They're controlling people's jobs, not just from the head coach, but all the way down to the PR people of the world.
1: Yeah. And I I just imagine this, like, you know, feedback loop of him writing things and boosters hearing things. And, you know, we we mentioned the sort of inside perspectives that they wouldn't necessarily have. And even, you know, beyond the boosters, the fans themselves, like, they would read you know, Russ Porter's article or hear his podcast. And, you know, assume that that was, you know, what the deal actually was. And that sort of momentum could ruin somebody's career, which is, you know, may or may not be what happens in the book.
0: Right. And I, I would love to, to really dive into, um, and how this, how this novel ends, but obviously we're going to, we're going to save some of that for the readers and the listeners. Um, but no, I think Russ Porter was a really important character. I, I think, his bias on how he viewed things, no matter how clear or cut they were, the opposite way um, mm-hmm. was an important role. And it is scary because they talk all the time about how, you know, false information spreads three times faster over the cases than, than real truthful information does. And we see that in college football, but we see that in a lot of other aspects of our lives too, which yep. is just sad. And, and it is the easy way now though. It is. I mean, I, I'm not going to sit here and tell you I'm the hundred percent, you know, the, the baseline for truth and knowledge and everyone else should follow my lead. Um, But as someone who's been doing this podcast now for over a year, um, it is frustrating sometimes realizing that I could probably just put out a bunch of BS and and be more popular and kind of go that route. Um, And and I'm going to be honest with you. I think everybody who has gone, got into this has been tempted by, or at least frustrated by, by those Russ Porters of the world.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And like, and, it's from a certain point of view it's like why wouldn't he do that like why why wouldn't you choose you know to try to advance your career um why wouldn't you choose the easier path and like another important thing for him was like he's not always wrong like it, it, there there had to be some element of you know him being correct on the things he was reporting and him just he couldn't just be an idiot otherwise he'd be too easy to dismiss like it, it, there has to be this sort of That's a good point. Yeah, and that, that made him an interesting, you know, character to kind of explore. It's just be like, you know, I I can't just have him be this, you know, obvious clown that uh, people, you know, just brush off. Like it has to be. There has to be this sort of um, facade around him of the the hardened journalist, um, and you know, there has to be some backing.
0: Yeah, and I yeah, you, know, you did a fan. The more I read it, the more I didn't like him, but the more I realized that you'd done a fantastic job, and probably maybe one of the, the more in-depth characters that you have in this novel. I, I know you can't talk about uh, specifically what happened or, or we're choosing not to talk about specifically what happens yeah. at the end, but I do have to ask you why you decided to go that route. Why did you decide to finish the book you did? And why could maybe the f- finale, at least in my own perspective, be a little bit longer? Why why couldn't we have um, that fleshed out a little bit more?
1: Um, I, I think... I wanted it to have a sort of air of mystery left to it still. Um, and I, I, I sort of wanted it to be abrupt because that was the way that it would have felt to the people involved. Like you have this, you know, career that unfurls over uh, multiple decades and then all of a sudden like it hits this inflection point and then it, it just changes forever. Um, and that's, that's kind of where the story goes cold for like a decade. Um, canonically in in the book Um, so I I think that would be because I had that thought too of you know I I could definitely you know flesh this out a little bit more and poke into some more stories after the fact but like that was it It, that was that was the end that was where um, that particular arc ended and like I said I was trying to sort of emulate how sudden it would have felt to the people that were closest to it.
0: Yeah, that's actually a good point, because now the more I think about it, the abruptness, but also the subtleness of how it ended is pretty realistic to how that would happen in the news cycle today. I mean, Mm -hmm. something like that happens, and and, and from everyone's perspective, from from Frank Payton's perspective to John's perspective to uh, Dave Medina's perspective, you kind of just, especially in the college football world, okay, like that happened, well... Mm -hmm we're moving on like th- that's kind of just how it feels now in college football and do you think that's you know the right way we should be doing it or do you think how many of these novels that you've written how many of these stories are, are actually probably out there that a don't get uncovered or b
1: people just don't at the end of the day care enough yeah and i i think specifically like for in the case of my book um i Whenever you have sort of a regression to the norm, I think is sort of more acceptable to people in the news cycle. Like, if you like, because like the interesting thing here is somebody like Dave Medina taking over. Because, like, let's just imagine a scenario where um, Nick Saban steps down and, you know, had he not left for Texas, Steve Sarkeesian takes that job and is the coach at Alabama now. So that's sort of like, that would probably stick a little bit longer than, oh, okay, well, he he, he didn't cut it, and now Coach Saban is back, so we're going to, like, it's, it's a regression to the mean, like, it is, you know, we're going to move on pretty quickly from that, but I, I think we're just kind of, I honestly, just conditioned at this point to expect that, you know, we use that term coaching carousel, and I, I think that's pretty apt, like, just the way that it it's sort of cartoonish um, in the way that it unfolds pretty much every season. And that's, you know, part of the drama. And, and I think to answer your question, like that's, it's probably just a product of conditioning. I don't know if it's good or bad. I, I think it's, I wish that we were more empathetic about, um, you know, people's lives being uprooted and um, having to find new jobs, uh, which is part of the reason that I wrote the book. But it's, you know, it's just part of the deal now.
0: Yeah, I think that it is. It's just, I mean, it's just part of the deal. I think that's a kind of a good way. um, And and maybe kind of, maybe I just kind of now really understood, you know, the title of your book, Seamless Transition. I mean, there's a lot of different ways you can view the title of your book because there's a more literal one. But at the same time, you know, you think about how college football has these seamless transitions, um, whether it's program to program or whether it's kind of. You know we're seeing right now just the that we talked about a second ago. the the player coach personalities are kind of seamlessly transitioning across the country and taking over for those yeah. more stern um disciplinary coaches that we're we're being used to for for a long time. So I think seamless transition is a really, you know, you know, even go down to players' rights and how quickly they have sort of transitioned their way into. Uh, not only expecting more, but receiving more. I mean, there's yeah. there's a lot of different kind of ways um, that you can kind of describe college football as far as seamlessly transitioning.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Especially, I think that the transfer point is well taken because I know, especially now, um, that those rules have been relaxed. Like you know, I, we just picked up Tamu from Tennessee to to be our star linebacker. Now, I certainly hope he so hope he uh, transitions seamlessly. That would be very nice. Um, uh, but it's it, it, we're we're gonna see, I think, and some transitions are gonna be a lot more seamless than others.
0: Right, absolutely, and um, yeah, I mean, just the recent breaking news that the SEC is now allowing mm-hmm. um, intra-conference transferring right away. So um, I think that's most of the conferences now. I think that, you know it, it's moved that direction, and so that's what we're gonna get for transferring moving forward. Uh, Will, I really appreciate you stopping on in, and I'm glad we got to have this. I am i'm not kidding around i am not just pushing this just to push this i really enjoyed this book um i read it in about three sittings i read half of it on the way to the beach when it was my girlfriend's turn to drive i read probably another quarter of it at the beach um and reason i didn't finish it on the beach right away is because i didn't like bringing the uh just the papers because i I printed out the whole thing because i did not want to read on on i like Physical copies of things. Right. I didn't want to bring all of it onto the beach, but then I read the last quarter of it on the way home from the beach. So um, three sittings basically is all it took for me. It had exceptionally um, good flow to it. It had a, a desire that you didn't want to really stop reading the story. You wanted to keep um, kind of figuring out the next clue to the puzzle. And I think the breadcrumbs that you were talking about earlier. Um, is a perfectly way, a perfectly good way to describe this novel because, you know, you kind of pick up one piece and you're like, OK, well, you know, I, I want to know more. And you pick up the next piece and it's like, OK, I want to know more. And, and you did a fantastic job in that aspect.
1: Well, thank you, Corey. I
0: appreciate it. Um, so, OK, so f- tell us again more about the book when and where people can get it in the near future um, and also where and people can find more about you.
1: Absolutely. Um, so the book is available on Amazon. That's the easiest way to pick it up. Um, it is also available on Rakuten Kobo, um, pretty much anywhere else that you can uh, order books online. Uh, if you would like to learn more about uh, other projects that I have worked on, uh, podcasts that I've developed, you can go to my website, which is www.willshingleton.com, and that you can also order the book from there
0: yeah fantastic we'll make sure to put that in the description of the podcast episode as well um yeah i i really enjoyed it i would love um to get a signed book to to give that away so we'll have to talk about that um and figure that out because i'm not kidding you like the political landscape aspect of culture like we always know it's there um but you really did a fantastic job of putting it all in one space uh it it was well compacted It, it was a joy to read well, thank you, Corey. I appreciate that. So, all right. Well, well, you have a fantastic day. I'm glad we got to do this. You have a great rest of your weekend, my friend.
1: Absolutely. You too. And roll tide.